If you're a first-time visitor here today, um, I want to encourage you to come back another week. (laughs) When you can have the opportunity to hear a little more seasoned teacher and expositor. Um, This is not my usual gig. I'm normally just the music guy. And we need to get you a better mic. This is is pitiful. Um, In fact, this is the first time I have ever preached a sermon. So, lucky you all. It's not the first time I've been asked to preach, but it is the first time. Usually my response to the pastors that ask me to preach is, I'll do your job one Sunday if you'll do mine. So, Scott, you're up next week. Um, Joking aside, I, I do feel like I need to repent a little bit before you this morning. I have made this way too much about me this week. I have become tense and stressed out and anxious and nervous, and I've taken it out on the people I love. And so I just, I just need to repent. This is not about me. So. This morning we'll be in the book of Esther. But before we begin, I'd like to read from Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we ask that you will speak to us through your scripture. May we see you only as you reveal yourself to us that we may be encouraged and built up in hope. Amen. The book of Esther is a really interesting book. Who's, how many, admit, How many of you were thinking, I really don't quite remember what happens in Esther? If we're honest, there's probably several of us. You know what? Esther, um, throughout throughout history, there have been some theologians that have thought we shouldn't include Esther with the rest of Scripture because they said it was a little too Jewish and it didn't have a whole lot to do with the gospel. Um, So I hope that this morning we'll find out that that's not quite the case. The story of Esther has all the elements of a good story for you English teachers. It's got exposition and rising action and climax. It's got character development, protagonist, antagonist. Are you proud of me? Yeah. (laughs) You know, at first glance, it seems like an exciting little straightforward story, a little narrative. Um, But there is an undercurrent of meaning that is especially pertinent for Christians today. Uh, Esther begins in the chambers of King Ahasuerus. Now, your scriptures may call him King Xerxes, and Xerxes is his Greek name. But for this morning, we'll call him Ahasuerus, which Ahasuerus equals Xerxes, so just keep up with that. Um, Ahasuerus was the ruler of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire at that time stretched from modern-day Greece all the way to modern-day India. That's a pretty big area that this man was the ruler of. And he, so he was a very important man, and he knew it. While he was the king, um, on the seventh day of a feast that he was enjoying with his trusted advisors, um, the scripture says, while he was merry with wine, he summons for his wife Vashti. Now, for whatever reason, Vashti declines the invitation, and she does not make an appearance And he is just there, humiliated in front of his bros. His wife 
didn't show up when she was summoned. A ruler of this kind of type of importance is not going to stand for that kind of embarrassment. So, if he can't manage his own household, chances are he can't manage a kingdom of that size. So what does he do? He has to divorce her, and he banishes her from the palace. Uh, in chapter 2, what does the king do next? He orders every province in the empire to gather up all the pretty young virgins, because he's going to choose himself a new queen. Now, in the meantime, over down in the city of uh, the citadel of Susa, there is a Jew named Mordecai. And Mordecai is there, and he is raising the daughter of his uncle. So he's raising his cousin. Uh, and Esther, Esther was a beautiful young woman. Scripture said she was lovely to look at. And as a result, she was chosen from their province to be taken into the king's harem. Esther was such a delight to those in charge. She impressed so much the people in charge of the harem that she was given preferential cosmetic treatments. And she was given seven attendants right off the bat. Now, Scripture tells us the time of beautification for the women in the king's harem before they could go to the king was 12 months. Now, for you all, for you ladies here this morning, a year of spa treatments sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. And guess what? Esther was probably enjoying it as well. Ultimately, uh, when she does get her appearance with the king... He is so taken with her that he immediately says, this is my queen. Um, So after he takes her to the queen, there's a big celebration in the land. There's a big feast and there's a tax holiday. And if you ask me, that's one heck of a wedding favor. Um, Now before Esther was taken to the palace, Mordecai, her caretaker, Mordecai instructed her not to reveal to anyone that she was a Jew. And while she was there, he would stand at the palace gates waiting to send and receive messages from her. He was keeping tabs on her because she was still under his charge. Um, While he was there one night, he heard two of the king's eunuchs, two eunuchs who were plotting to kill the king for reasons we can only assume are pretty obvious. Um, Mordecai instructs Esther to warn the king of the plan, and that effectively saves the king's life. In chapter 3, we go on. There was also in Susa a man named Haman. Now, when they would tell this story um, throughout the generations of Jews, uh, anytime the word Haman was said, all the kids would jeer and boo and hiss because Haman is the villain. So we'll try that once and then no more. So there was a man named Haman. Boo. That's right. No more after that. That's good. Okay. Haman was a bad dude. He was a villain. Um. And King Ahasuerus promoted Haman to his head official. So that gave him a lot of power. He makes him responsible for everything in the kingdom and, for, and forces all of the servants, especially those that stand at the palace gates, that whenever they see Haman, they're supposed to bow down. Mordecai was the only guy chilling at the gates that did not bow down to Haman whenever he came across him. So what does Haman do in response to this? Well, he decides that Mordecai... This Jew, Mordecai, must die. And not only, not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. He goes to the king and he says, you know what these Jews? These Jews, they have their own laws. And those laws are outside of the laws of Persia. So we've got to get rid of them. 
And so with the blessing, with the king's blessing, an edict is written that commands for all Jews in the entire empire to be eliminated. And at that time, that would be effectively eliminating all the Jews on the earth. So we're looking at the total destruction of God's people. And here we begin to see how the minds work of those people who stand against God. Those who live for their own glory and benefit. This brings us to our first point. People who live only for themselves stand in opposition to God and others. People who live only for themselves stand in opposition to God and others. Now, we've already seen this in King Ahasuerus when he frivolously dismisses his wife for not showing up when she's called. This man, this king, he was only concerned with his own interests. He was only concerned with his own reputation. He was only concerned with his own career to the detriment of his marriage and family. And I pray that this does not sound familiar to any of you all here today. First Peter 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Upon hearing of this edict, the Jews were devastated. They went into mourning. They clothed themselves in sackcloth. And Mordecai was right there along with them. They, they clothed themselves in sackcloth and, and mourned and cried and wailed and cried out to God. And Mordecai sends the message to Esther. He wants Esther to know what's going on. And he begs Esther. He said, you have to intercede on behalf of your people to the king. Now, Esther is terrified of doing this because it says, if a man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. At this point, it had been 30 days since the Esther had had an audience with the king. He hadn't called her. So it had been a month, and she's sitting here going, what if he doesn't want to see me ever again? So she's scared. Mordecai's reply to her was this. I'm continuing on um, 4, verses 12, verse 12 and following. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, let's talk about the person of Esther at this point. She's a Jew. She's an orphan. She was born in a foreign land, and she was raised in a foreign culture. Do you think that she was enjoying her life to this point. Sure, she was the queen. It's a pretty good life. Do you think she enjoyed the fact that she was beautiful? 
Absolutely. It's opened lots of doors for her. But do you think that her Jewish parents would have been proud of her? After all, she was sleeping with the uncircumcised villain king of Persia. Do you think that's the life they envisioned for their precious little Jewish daughter? Probably not. It's very important for us to understand this context at this moment because it's at this point in the story, it's so easy to over-glamorize her virtue. She was not a Joseph of the Bible. She was not a Joseph who, by his upright character and boldness of faith, ascended to second in command of Egypt. She was just a girl who found herself in the right place at the right time. And it's, as if, and it's not as if while she was maturing into a beautiful young woman, she thought, I bet God is planning to use my beauty to bring glory to his name. That never entered her mind. I mean, how many teenagers do you know that are considering using their looks for anything other than attracting members of the opposite sex? That's probably all it had occurred to her to use her beauty for. In entering the king's harem, she was merely playing the hand that she was dealt. Our next point, fortunately for us all, God is in the business of using flawed people to bring about his greater purposes. God is in the business of using flawed people to bring about his greater purposes. Esther was not some righteous super Jew that swoops in like a ninja to save her people. God was redeeming her messed up situation for his glory. Here we begin to see how God's providence and the folly and the foolishness of mankind work together. Do you think it was God that caused Ahasuerus to divorce his wife? No, it was his sin nature. And do you think it was God that caused Haman to issue an edict to destroy all God's people? No, it was his sin nature. But do you think it was God who made Esther beautiful? Yes. Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Is it possible that God actively knit Esther into a beautiful woman? Absolutely. And if you think that's true, then you must agree that God has made you exactly as you are for his purposes. Now, that's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. It's a difficult thing to accept. Because it's clear here that God had a plan for Esther. She would need to be beautiful, and not just any kind of beautiful. She had to be the king's type. We see that Mordecai has already come to this realization when in verse 414 he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was gladly, up to this point, reaping the benefits of the beauty that God had given her. But God had bigger plans for that beauty. 
There are aspects of your life that you are reaping the benefits of that God can use for his greater glory. Have you thought about that? There are aspects of your life that you are reaping the benefits of that God would rather use for his greater glory. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's charisma. Maybe you're an inspiring speaker. Maybe you possess great strength. Maybe you're persuasive. Maybe you're good-looking like Esther. Just think, if you know how to mine the benefits, if you know how to take advantage of those things in your life, don't you think that the God who fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish can make much more of your giftings? Esther is now in a place to serve God. So let's read on. This is where the intensity really starts getting good. I'm reading um, and I'm continuing on. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even half of my kingdom. Then Esther said, Bring Haman quickly. Uh, no, then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman Come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... uh, if you have found favor in the, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and, and, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, uh, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I have prepared for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. So, uh, my best guess here is that Esther just chickens out. She's like, ha, "Tomorrow, come tomorrow, and I'll tell you then." So, um, after all, she's just a little Jewish girl. She's just a Jewish girl that caught the eyes of the right people. And now she has the occasional audience with the king of Persia. Or, there was more to the story that was yet to be revealed before she made her request. As Haman returned from the feast, he encounters Mordecai yet again at the gate. And again, Mordecai does not bow down. But, but Haman is feeling good. He doesn't even care. He says, I just, I just had drinks and food with the king and queen. Whatever, I'm going home. So he goes home and he tells his wife and his servants, ah, I just had a great dinner. But you know what, that, that guy Mordecai still is not bowing down to me. So they say, you've got to do something about it. So he says, you know what, I am. I'm going to make an example of him. I'm going to build gallows in my front yard. And we're going to make these gallows 70 feet tall. And we're going to hang him tomorrow. Now why do you think they needed to be 70 feet tall? So that people way on down the road could see the example of what happens to someone who does not bow down to Haman. That night, the king couldn't sleep. And so when 
probably like many of you, when the king couldn't sleep, he decided he was going to read a little bit. So he had some servants come and bring the book of the Chronicles. Now, for me, if I'm going to read at night, aside from college football articles, nonfiction is quick to put me right back to sleep. So that's what he's reading. The book of the Chronicles. Uh, The king's attendants recounted the events of the scandal involving those two eunuchs that plotted to kill him. And then he also was reminded of what Mordecai had done to save his life. So the next day, when he runs into Haman, he says, Haman, Haman, I got this, got this person that I, I want to honor. What should I do for the person that the king wants to honor? And Haman's going, it's got to be me. I mean, who else would it be? You know, so Haman says, I, I got this, I got this. It says in verse 7 of chapter 6, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. As where he says, great, make it so for Mordecai. And Haman's going, you're kidding. (laughs) Mordecai. So the dumbfounded and dejected Haman, boo, goes to the next feast that Esther has prepared. There, Esther finally reveals her request. In chapter 7, it says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king... And if it please, and if and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would be silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who dared do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king then orders that Haman be hung on the very gallows that he intended for Mordecai. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? Isn't that how you expect a story that never mentions God even wants to end? God's never mentioned. And the king and queen lived out long lives and the Jewish people never again faced the threat of destruction. It's not what it says. That's not how it ends. Wouldn't that be a great little morality story? So who then is the hero of the story? Is it Esther for her bravery in the face of death? Is it Mordecai who cunningly saved the king's life and has the strength not to bow down to the evil Haman? No. It's not either of those people. Who is it? It's God. God is the hero. You say, Will, how can you say that if God's not even mentioned in this story? Or was he? We've already determined that he was active in creating a beautiful Esther. But where else was he? See, when we hold our Bibles in our hands, 
were holding a very unique perspective that Esther did not have. Let's turn back over to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Beginning in verse 14. Now here, this is the conclusion of the awesome story where Aaron and Hur held up the arms of Moses while Joshua fought the Amalekites. Remember that story, yes? All right. So it says in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, great, but what does this have to do with Esther? Stay with me and I'll show you. Now can we turn over to 1 Samuel? Bible drill time. Who can get there first? 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And then down in verse 20 and 21, it says this. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul did not obey. He captured, but he did not kill Agag, the king. So now we're going to tie it all in. You're going, all right, this has nothing to do with Esther. Now we're going to go back to Esther chapter 3. Esther 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. You see, Haman was the direct result of Saul's disobedience. He shouldn't even exist, but is rather a descendant of Agag, of the Amalekites that were supposed to be destroyed. Don't think for a moment that disobedience does not have implications. It will have ramifications for you, and it will have ramifications for those you love, and it will have ramifications for those who sit under your influence. Now get ready for this. This is where, this is like mind-blowing for me. Uh, One chapter back, 
Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. And for you really astute Bible scholars, you will know that Kish is also the father of Saul. So, this is not just a coincidence or poetic justice. This is God doing what God does. He's demonstrating his sovereignty. God has called and arranged for an obedient descendant of Saul to do what a disobedient King Saul could not do. Isn't that crazy? God has ordained all of these events to redeem his people. Yes, but why is God not even mentioned once in the book of Esther? The best reason for me, knowing that he is sovereign, is that he doesn't want or need to be mentioned in the book of Esther. You see, God is showing us, and this is our next point, God is showing us that even in the stories where he appears to be absent, he is ever-present, working out his purposes for his people. Even in the stories, when God appears to be absent, he is ever-present, working out his purposes for his people. But how does he make himself known then? The book of Esther contains no signs and wonders, no miracles, there's no prophecy. It's just his guiding hand, directing the things that seem ordinary. And this is not unlike our lives today. When is the last time you experienced the lame rising and walking? When's the last time you were at Lake Wiley and the seas just, and you could walk across on dry ground? When's the last time you were in your front yard and one of your bushes lights up and starts talking to you? Just because it's not explicit doesn't mean he's not there. The providence of God is something we can't really see in the moment. But if we go back and we take inventory of the events and trials of our lives, we can see our next point. God is still in the business of protecting and delivering his chosen people. God's still in the business of protecting us and delivering us. Why would he want to do that? Why does God care so much about us that he's concerned with preserving us? It's because of this. It's so that we can make his name known throughout all generations and in every nation. God preserves us so that we can make his name known throughout all generations and in every nation. Ephesians chapter 1, 9, and 10 tells us this, that God makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is the only hero of our stories. And while he might accomplish great things through us, and he might equip us to do things, it's all for the sake of his name and not our own. There's an end of the story that we must not neglect. You see, evil 
meant for Haman's plot, Haman's edict, to be the destruction of God's people. Ultimately, Mordecai is given second in command of Persia. And what does he do? He, in turn, issues a second edict that not only undoes the original edict, but it empowers God's people to respond aggressively when they're threatened. This means, don't, don't miss this, this is the point. The very means for wiping out all hope for God's people becomes the means by which they are saved. The very means for wiping out all hope for God's people becomes the means by which they're saved. Haman issued an edict meant for their destruction, but Mordecai issues an edict that is ultimately their salvation. Does this sound familiar? You see, Jesus' death on the cross was meant to kill the Messiah, the conquering king, when in fact, all that was conquered was death itself. And ultimately, that death provided for the salvation of God's people through the forgiveness of sins. That which was meant for evil, God uses for good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you use us in spite of ourselves. We thank you for stories like this where we can see you at work even when you're not intended to be seen. Thank you for the eyes that you've given us to see and the ears that you've given us to hear. God, we pray that this week we would rely on you. That we would not just do brave things and do bold things, but do them with the peace of the knowledge of knowing that you are guiding our lives. Father, for those hearts this morning that feel like they're being guided, but they don't know what that means, God, I pray that they would seek you, that they would ask the right questions, and that you would reveal yourself to them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.